Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you should not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your, your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything uh, that is your neighbor's. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Lord, we are thankful for the privilege of being able to gather here this morning. And we ask, Lord, that although we're outside and although there may be different distractions or we're trying to fight for some shade just to make sure that we can endure this time on a physical level, Lord, allow our minds and our hearts to be focused on what it is that you want to say to us this morning. And so, Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? And what we have not, Lord, would you give us? And allow me as your messenger, Lord, to stand and speak and proclaim your truth for your people so that they can grow to be more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us today, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, today we come to Exodus chapter 20 and to one of the most well-known texts in all of the Bible and one of the most important pieces of literature in the whole world where we find God speaking his Ten Commandments. Now, to begin with, we need to recognize that although the expression Ten Commandments is found in the Scriptures, the translation isn't actually Ten Commandments. But the Hebrew actually identifies them as Ten Words. And that's why the Ten Commandments are often referred to as the Decalogue. It comes from two Greek words, deca, which means ten and logos, which means word. So these are the ten words that God spoke to Israel on Mount Sinai. But the question now for us is this, are they even important? Do we really need them? Aren't they just an archaic list of rules and regulations made up by Moses, which ultimately put Israel back into some kind of slavery? 
Why should we pay any attention to them at all? Well, I heard this story once. An announcement comes over the PA system here. People have boarded a plane, and they're getting ready to go, and and this is what the, the passengers now hear. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for choosing to fly with us today. This is an historic flight because for the first time in aviation history, there will be no pilot at the controls. Our entire journey will be conducted by automated computer programs. But the airline wishes to assure you that there is nothing to fear. Nothing can go wrong. Can go wrong. Can go wrong. Can go wrong. Now, friends, it doesn't take much to look around the world and note that something has gone wrong. And many take it that the state of the world is conclusive evidence that God is absent, that there's no pilot at the controls. And that is why we are in a free fall, spiraling out of control toward disaster. It doesn't seem to occur to us, however, that there is a pilot, but it's the passengers that are in mutiny against him. Now, friends, these Ten Commandments reveal that there is a God and that he has spoken. They reveal that we can know him and his requirements. Why? Because he is speaking them to us. But the Ten Commandments also reveal man's rebellion and hatred for the God of the Bible, as well as man's unwillingness to live under God's rule and reign. So now the Ten Commandments have been a a source of conflict in our society. Certainly we've seen that just as we've uh, watched or listened to news over the past few years. In fact, there have been many successful efforts to remove the Ten Commandments because they are an offense to modern-day thinking, a thinking that it sees itself as higher or more refined and more superior, a culture that likes to view itself as sophisticated against the unsophisticated and barbaric culture of years gone by that must anchor itself in such an offensive and abusive embrace of an archaic list of commands of an irrelevant God. Now, I have to put a qualifier here. There's an element of truth. There's been a lot done in the name of Christianity that has caused great damage in the world. But that doesn't mean that the Ten Commandments are obsolete. The question that is often asked is this. Who determines the commandments that we must live by? Is it society or is it God? Well, what happens when major decisions are left to society? It's interesting what those who are rebelling against the Ten Commandments want to come up with when they have the choice to come up with their own commandments. I read up a number of articles this week, atheist groups, Christopher Hitchens, secular groups, internet competitions to determine which would be the best 10 commandments that people could come up with, and they said a lot of the same things. So I kind of jotted a few of them down. There's not 10, but there's a few. Reject organized religion was like at the top of the list. Love your environment. 
Don't put up with racism. Don't kill. Get off your cell phone. I like that one. Love everyone. Be kind to all. Now, when you're listening to most of those, you're like, well, yeah. I mean, this is what Scripture teaches. It's not for racism. It's against racism. It's for not killing or murdering people, but protecting them, right? I mean, so there's a lot of these things that we would say, yes, we agree with these. But when they're mentioned, they're mentioned here with all sorts of caveats, and there's an ideology behind each of those statements that nuances them in a particular cultural direction. Now, I reflected then, having gone, done, done that, and kind of came up with my top 10 cultural commandments of the day. And here's what I came up with. Most of them are somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I hope you'll at least understand. Number one, you are number one. Always look out for yourself. Commandment number two, root out racism, even if you have to be a racist to do it. It may take a while for that to settle in. Always trust your feelings over facts. Your heart will always guide you in truth. Commandment number four, we must trust science to guide us, not evil and antiquated religion. Number five, one should never question sexual orientation and gender identity based on science. It is just a truth we must embrace regardless of science. Number six, in the court of public opinion, you are guilty until proven innocent. But even if you're found innocent, you're still guilty based on whether society likes you or not. Number seven, be tolerant with everyone unless they disagree with the perceived majority opinion of the culture, which happens to be the culture that you embrace. Number eight, if you don't get your way, be sure to throw a tantrum and post it on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Number nine, smoking is always evil, unless it's marijuana, which we all know is for medicinal use. And number 10, there are no absolute truths. Absolutely no absolute truths. Now, of course, tongue-in-cheek, a little bit of truth, having fun there, but you get the point. Now, I don't know if you remember this at all. This is a number of years ago. Um, in England, the British government wanted to name a special boat. It was a 287 million polar research vessel. And in an effort to gain publicity, they decided we're going to go out to the internet and we're going to allow the people of Britain to determine the name of this boat. And they made some suggestions like Ernest Shackleton, the famous explorer, or the Endeavor, or the Falcon. But the winner by far on the internet vote was Bodie McBoatface. Needless to say, they didn't go with that one. They went down to like the fourth one, which was Sir David Attenborough, which is appropriate. But the point here is this. The wisdom of society isn't always wise. And when you leave society to determine what the commandments and the guidelines and the, the structures are, um, it just blows with the spirit of the age, doesn't it? I mean, from 10 years to another 10 years, it can change considerably. 
And friends, that's why it's so refreshing to pick up God's word and see that we have a pilot who is flying the plane, who knows where he is taking us and who has given us some instructions that are for our safety and for our freedom. So this morning, just kind of in a general sense, here is my proposition. God's commandments are good and flow from the heart of a loving, covenant-keeping God who seeks to guide his children into a life of freedom. God's commandments are good. We got we to gotta drill that into us, friends. They're good, and they flow from the heart of a loving, covenant-keeping God who seeks to guide his children into a life of freedom. I appreciate what Philip Ryken observes. You have that in your handouts. It says, good teaching on the law and the gospel has never been more badly needed than it is today. We're living in, a law, in lawless times when disrespect for authority has led to widespread disdain for God's commandments. People are behaving badly, even in church. Part of the problem is that people don't know what God requires. Even among Christians, there is an appalling lack of familiarity with the perfect standard of God's law. And of course, the situation is far worse in the culture at large. This ignorance undoubtedly contributes to the general lowering of moral standards in these post-Christian times, but it does as much damage to our theology. People who are ignorant of God's law never see their need for the gospel. As John Bunyan explained, the man who does not know the nature of the law cannot know the nature of sin, and he who does not know the nature of sin cannot know the nature of the Savior. So this morning, as we continue our study through the book of Exodus, we're going to take a purposeful pause to consider why these Ten Commandments are so central and essential, not just for the Israelites in the wilderness, but also for the contemporary church and society as a whole. And today I want to both take, a, take time to lay out the general introduction to the Ten Commandments, but I also want to take time to embrace the specific um, instructions or, or, or words that God gives now to the Israelites that are preparing them for what he's going to say in verses 3 through 17. So let's jump in now. Why? Uh, just by asking the question, why study the Ten Commandments? I just have three things. I just want to highlight three things that I think are reasons why we should study the Ten Commandments. Number one, they are not largely neglected. If I randomly called on someone here in our church family to, to stand up and list off the Ten Commandments by memory, could you do it? Now, I know we've already read them, so you, you have, you're, you're ahead of the game, right? You kind of have kind of a gist of what they are. But by and large, the Ten Commandments are not things that are taught anymore. We don't hear a lot of teaching. We don't hear a lot of catechizing of our children. Here are the Ten Commandments. I even think in my family, it's not something that we made uh, made a priority of. Now, we believe them. If we saw them, we would embrace them. But even then, we're kind of ignorant about how they, how they even work. A study was done a few years ago to see if people in society could list off the Ten Commandments versus the ingredients of a McDonald's Big Mac. And of course, the people had great difficulty in listing off the Ten Commandments, but the ingredients for the Big Mac won the day. Now, do we know what they are? 
If Christians can't articulate the Ten Commandments, how do we expect the society around us to remember them? Maybe we should, as a church, encourage one another and challenge one another to memorize these Ten Commandments. So, what are the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. Largely neglected. Secondly, they are also historically rooted. Now, when I say they're historically rooted, I'm saying that they have been embraced by societies all around the world and have been used as the foundation of their legal systems. In fact, if you were to go to the United States Supreme Court and you were to look up at one of the peaks of the court, you will find there Moses sitting with the two tablets with Confucius on his right side and Salon, who's the Greek, Uh, lawgiver on his left-hand side. By no means does that mean that the United States is a Christian nation, but it does express that the ideas and the practices of our nation are founded upon an essential truths that flow out of a Judeo-Christian ethic. In other words, these Ten Commandments are are, are part of the foundation of our legal thinking and understanding of how the world works. Now, some might argue There were already societies that had similar moral codes before God supposedly spoke to Moses on the mountain. And friends, that is true. And it's further evidence that these commandments are what nations need to establish lines of order and conduct among the people. When God gives these commandments, it isn't as if no one's thought of them before. But what God is doing is he's selecting and affirming what in his sovereign mind were the central commandments that Israel needed and that all nations would ultimately need. I mean, just think about it. What would it be like if, if in society it was okay to steal? It was okay to murder? No, most society is going to say, no, we don't want to kill people. It's pretty standard. Um, Stealing is not a good thing. There's always the exceptional kind of, you know, there's some kind of people group somewhere that has different attitudes toward things. But generally speaking, these are, these are normal, essential, foundational truths that speak into what it means to be a society. So they're, they're historically rooted. Third, um, they are culturally distorted. The Ten Commandments have come under attack many times in our country's history and are presently considered irrelevant by most people, even within the church. Sadly, much of the church, because of its lack of careful theology, wants to distance itself from the Old Testament because in it they find what they perceive to be a harsh, unloving God who was out to reign on everyone's parade. And they see the Ten Commandments as simply that one of the vehicles for that to take place. It's just simply a list of rules and regulations that seem to be out of touch with reality. So when the church turns it back, its back on the Ten Commandments, when society turns its back on the Ten Commandments, it might be a good idea for us to study them so that we can have a right and biblical understanding of what God was doing by giving Israel these ten words at Mount Sinai. So with that, let's, let's take now time to think of a general 
introduction. So I'm, I'm, I'm coming from outside of this text, trying to move through Scripture uh, in ways to say, how, how, does, how do the Ten Commandments work? What is the theology of the Ten Commandments? Uh, how, how, do we, how are we supposed to approach them? Now, what I'm going to say here in the next few minutes is certainly not exhaustive. There's more to be said, but I want to give enough you know, to, so that it can be sufficient to help you begin to, to get a framework of how we approach these Ten Commandments, right? So th- this might be stuff you already know, um, but I think for us, it's going to be good to be reminded of these things. First of all, their division. Notice their division. How are these uh, commandments divided? It's clear that the laws of God, um, and I'm speaking broadly now, just not just the Ten Commandments, but broadly the, the laws of God. It's clear that God gave them to Israel, but not all of them are of the same kind. And we're certainly going to find that as we press on in the book of Exodus here. Uh, and the church has historically understood the Ten Commandments under three, or not Ten Commandments, but his law, his commandments in general, under three headings. Uh, the civil law, the ceremonial law, and then the moral law. Turn your Bibles now to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We want to look at the civil law to begin with. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 13 and 14. Here's what Peter says. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. You know, Albert introduced this morning and talked about why we're doing what we're doing here, trying to keep these protocols, because we're trying to be faithful to this statement and others like it in Scripture. So be subject to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, now get this, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So what is the function of human civil authority and government? Two things, to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. Now, if that is the case, it is important that we understand the difference between what is evil and what is good. And in order to be able to make that distinction, what do you have to do? You have to have some kind of guide, right? Now, most of us actually take for granted uh, this, this reality of living in a country where there is civil order. You know, you might think when we've had some, some riots in our country, oh, this is terrible, what's going to happen? And yeah, certainly there is an element of that, but other countries have had it far worse and are having it far worse. We are privileged to live in a society where law and order has been the norm for us. There's certainly exceptions here and there, but it is primarily the norm for us. And so we really may not take it too seriously. So many of the laws God speak later in the book of Exodus will flesh out this, this civil law. They would be like case law based on the uh, Ten Commandments, but dealing in particular with civil issues, things having to do with stolen property or borrowing money or manslaughter and so on and so forth. Secondly, there is ceremonial law. What we're going to find is that God lays out instructions as to how Israel is to approach God in worship. And so there are regulations and and guidelines there about what happens in the tabernacle, how sacrifices are to be made, the kind of food you should drink, or eat, and and the drink you should have, the religious festivals that are going to be celebrated, and the requirements of priests, all those kinds of things. Now, these ceremonial laws point forward to Christ. 
And ultimately, they are not binding on us. Why? Because we are no longer in, in a paradigm where there's a tabernacle or a temple. That's changed now with the church. There's a new, they might want to say, not paradigm, but a new kind of a, um, well, maybe paradigm's a good word, but kind of or structure that God is working through, right? And third, of course, there's the moral law. And this, this is where God's character is expressed to us. His will is given to us, and primarily those are summarized in the Ten Commandments. So we have the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral law. And this is helpful, guys, because, you know, someone might be you know, arguing with you and say, well, how come, you know, you know, it says you shouldn't mark your skin and blah, 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 you know, but, 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 but you're okay. In other words, you're picking and choosing commandments. Well, part of it is because of what are the commandments and where do they come from and what category are they in. And what we're emphasizing here, emphasizing here is the moral law. All right? Secondly, now, their structure. Their structure. And I want you to turn your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. You know this very well. This is the passage that talks about the greatest commandment. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And that's an expression that says the whole of the Old Testament. So in this passage, Jesus makes a distinction between two great commandments. Love the Lord your God. Secondly, love your neighbor. And then he says, this is, this is what all these hang on. Now, where do these laws or expressions come from? Well, they come from two places in the Old Testament and two places in the books of Moses. In particular, we have Deuteronomy 6.5 that tells us to love the Lord our God with all your heart, soul, mind. That's all there in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. In Leviticus 19 and verse 18, we're told there that we are to love our neighbor. So what Jesus is saying here is not new information, is it? It's old information that he's categorizing together. And what's interesting is those categories are actually helpful for us to understand the Ten Commandments. Because the first four commandments teach us to love the Lord our God, right? We're, we're, we're to not have any other gods. We're not to uh, practice idolatry. We're not to take his name in vain. We're to remember the Sabbath. These are all vertical things that God has given us now in our, in our relationship with him and our desire to love him. Commandments 5 through 10, then, are all horizontal. This is how we love our neighbor. Honor your father and mother. No murder, no adultery, no stealing, no bearing false witness, no coveting your neighbor's stuff. That's all horizontal. So what Jesus is saying in his statement there in Matthew, he's basically emphasizing the, the, the Ten Commandments, and he's fleshing it out now in a language that might be different than what the people here are hearing. It's, a, it's something that is motivated by love. So there's a, there's a structure, and the structure is to love God, to love your neighbor. It's vertical and it's horizontal. Three, the purpose of these commandments. I just want to highlight a difference between what's called the Mosaic Covenant, which is what we're, we're reading here in the next few chapters, and what's called the New Covenant. 
the Mosaic Covenant, we can find a summary, kind of anticipation summary of it in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 7. And here's what God says. He says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The new covenant, however, um, is, is, is given and foreshadowed here in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 31. And listen to Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And verse 34 says this, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So one of the, 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 the unifying things about these two covenants is the goal to make God known or to know the Lord. Here's that theme of Exodus again. But secondly, what makes them different is in the Mosaic covenant, the law was to be taught. In the new covenant, God writes the law on the heart, in the conscience of man. All right? So there's a purpose. It's to know God, and God ultimately in the new covenant has written that law on the heart. The fourth thing here is the nature, their nature. The contemporary religious attitude to the law of God is that it's just a bunch of rules and regulations. In particular, rules and regulations that stifle and rain on my freedoms. But that is not how Scripture describes the law of God. No, they describe them as good and delightful. And I want to highlight just two Psalms. Psalm 1, and I know that you know it very well. It's the beginning of the Psalter, the beginning of the book of the Psalms. And in the beginning here, this is what we find. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of, the, of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now just let that settle in. His delight is in these rules, regulations, standards. That's what the people are calling them. On his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. In other words, in that law, that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So clearly in Psalm 1, the writer of that psalm is saying, look, the law is good and it's something that we delight in. In fact, delighting in the law of the Lord is set against embracing the wisdom of the world. Right? Walking the way of the wicked, standing the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of scoffers. And then Psalm 19, and you know this very well also, very familiar passage, describes the beautiful benefits of the law of God. And the law of God is described in a number of different words. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, but what does it do? Revives the soul. The, the testimony of the Lord is sure. What does it do? Makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. What do they do? They rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. 
The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Get this, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. So hear this, friends. Contrary to public opinion, when we look at what Scripture itself says about the law or the commandments of God, we, we find that it says that the law is good. The law is delightful. And so one of the things we may have to ask ourselves is, do we just have a wrong perspective of the law? Are we just coming at it in the wrong way? Have we bought the lie that God just wants to rain on our parade, and so he gives us a bunch of rules and regulations to put us back into slavery? No, this law, it warns, which is a loving thing, and it rewards when it's listened to and obeyed. Can you imagine a world where there were no laws to guide us or no laws to protect us? Imagine driving your car to church this morning. There would be roads, but no guidance as to how you should drive on them. No speeding limits, no specific side of the street that you should drive on. No age restrictions as to whether someone's too young or too old. No indication as to how many lanes there are. No help for when you get in an accident. No order to who goes through an intersection first. Now, when I'm saying all this stuff, I'm thinking to myself, Bolivia, Bolivia, Bolivia. If you've ever been to a country somewhat like Bolivia, you can have as many lines on the street as you want, and they do have them, but no one cares. They tend to drive on the same, you know, the right side of the road, unless they want to drive on the left side of the road. I mean, it's just chaotic, right? But there's still some order. It's generally there if, if you want to follow it. And one of the things that happens when you come back here to the States is you kind of go, ah, this, this lane that has like dashes, that's where I need to be. And I'm going to stay there. And I know for the most part that the person next to me, they want to stay there too. And if they want to move over, they're probably going to use the indicator and they're going to move in and they're going to wave and be happy and all that kind of stuff, right? No, I don't know. That's going too far, Pastor. I get it, right? But you get the point. See, we, we, we don't realize necessarily what society would be like if there were no rules and regulations and standards and guidelines. They give us freedom. So friends, we need to see that. The next one, not just the nature, but now the order. What about their order in, in the Scriptures? Now, this should not as come as any surprise to us Chapter 20 comes after chapters 1 through 18. You say, why is that significant? Well, in other words, God's grace precedes God's law. This is really important for us. God's deliverance and salvation of Israel takes place before God speaks his Ten Commandments. So we must always keep the order right. It is God who saves us, and once we are his, he then instructs us how we are to live for his glory. You see the distinction there? So keeping the Ten Commandments is not a means for salvation. If you talk to someone and say, well, yeah, you keep, you know, do you follow the Ten Commandments? Oh, yeah, I keep the Ten Commandments. They have no clue what they're talking about. And keeping the Ten Commandments is not the solution. 
because you and I could never keep the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments were not given to us so that by keeping them, we could be saved. We are saved first, and then God instructs us. And friends, it's just really important to get the order right. See, Jesus is often described in Scripture as our Lord and our Savior. He saves us, and the moment he saves us, then we recognize that he is what? Lord. And by recognizing that he's Lord, we're saying, all right, you're the one that's going to guide us. You're the one that's going to direct us. And friends, this is the heart of the New Testament. Gospel, then practical application of, of truth that God has revealed to us. So living by a list of rules won't save you. It never has. Only faith and trust in what Christ has done will save you. So grace must come first and then the instructions and commandments to help us live in freedom, okay? That's the order. And then the last one on this list is their fulfillment. And we're just going to highlight this here. I mean, I have a couple of places to go, but I would invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew 5, 17. Jesus is giving a sermon on the mountain. He's about to say some things that are going to be controversial to those who are listening, in particular the Pharisees and the people who have been under the teaching of the Pharisees. And he wants to make sure his disciples don't misunderstand the teaching that's going to come. And he is, he's going to deal then with the law. So he says this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, it continues on, there's more to be said here, but just the idea that Jesus then is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus doesn't abolish the law or the prophets. He doesn't say that the law is useless or unnecessary. He comes to fulfill them. Now the question is, what does it mean to fulfill? It means to fill up the law's intent and show the goal to which it is pointing to. So when the law is given, that law is a temporary shadow that is pointing to a future reality. In other words, the law was a shadow of something greater, and Jesus is that something greater. For example, when the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians and chapter 5 and verse 7 says this, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, what is he doing? He's saying there was this thing called the Passover, which was a shadow of something greater to come. And that shadow is Jesus, Christ, our Passover lamb. You see that? And this is something rooted in Exodus that is actually pointing to something that is fleshed out in 1 Corinthians by Paul. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. So in a similar way, Jesus fulfills the law. He is the answer to which the law pointed. Now, turn a few pages over to Matthew 11 and verse 13. And again, this is Jesus speaking. And it's just a little bit, a little nuance I want you to see here. It says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So it wasn't just the prophets that prophesied, it's the law 
that is prophesied until John. That John is John the Baptist. So the law certainly legislates, but it's also prophesying. So what we have here in the Ten Commandments, what we have in the law that's going to be unfolded, is going to be legislation. But that legislation is also pointing forward to its fulfillment in Christ. So friends, we're not bound by the Mosaic Covenant because we are now part of the New Covenant. But that doesn't mean that the law has no bearing. It is a foundation that finds its fulfillment in Christ. So with the coming of Christ, the law isn't rendered obsolete. It still has a purpose of showing our sinfulness and directing our hearts to the only one who can keep the law, and that's Christ. So it's it's foundational to knowing and understanding our own sinfulness. It's foundational for us to understand who Christ is, and it's foundational for us to understand what he has done for us. All right, that's a, a general introduction to this issue of law and the commandments. There's a lot more to be said. Now, I realize that's a lot of data I'm throwing at you, but I'm trying to give you just a backdrop to kind of navigate as we come now to the Ten Commandments. So let's look now at the specific introduction to this particular Ten Commandments. And we're going to look now at verses 1 and 2 of Exodus chapter 20. Here's what it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I was talking to someone this week, and I said, well, my text is going to be verses 1 and 2. And it's like, yeah, it doesn't seem like there's a lot there, but I know you're going to pull out a lot from there, right? And it's like, yeah, this is, this is actually a very packed statement here that God gives. And there's basically two truths that I want you to see here. Number one, that God is, is the God who speaks. Secondly, that God is the God who saves. And this is all then preparation to say, I have the authority to give you these commands. He is the God who speaks, first of all. Now, it's important that when we look at these words, we look at them in their context. What do we find happening before chapter 20? Well, it's chapter 19. And as Peter was talking about the song that we were singing this morning, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that there's there's references in that song to what happens in chapter 19. That God is coming. He's telling the people, I'm coming, right? And I'm coming, and I want to say some things to you. And so when he comes, we see all these wonderful sounds and sights of lightning and thunder and fire and trumpets and thick clouds. And of course, God is at the top, coming down to the top of the mountain. Moses is brought uh, from where the people are up to the top of the mountain. This is all happening in chapter 19. And, And up to this point, when God is speaking to Israel. He's always speaking through the mediator, Moses. But now notice in chapter 20 and verse 1, what we actually read. And God spoke all these words. See, what's happening here is this. God is not speaking through Moses here. He is actually speaking to the people of Israel directly. He is face to face. That's what Moses reminds them of in Deuteronomy 5.4. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, 
out of the midst of the fire. Jump down to verse 19 of Exodus 20, and you'll understand why the people respond the way they do. After God was done speaking the, ten, the, the commandments, they say to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And friends, it's, it's, it's important for us to understand that, that, that God comes down and he speaks these commandments to the people, and they are a particular people. They're his treasured possession. They're a kingdom of priests. They're a holy nation, is what chapter 19 tells us. And when God speaks, it is always first and foremost to his children and for his children. But ultimately, it spills over as his children become now the, the missionaries to proclaim the knowledge of God to the world, to make him known. So we must first see that we are, we are listening to God's voice and receiving what he says before we can even consider seeking to declare his glory to the world. Now, friends, the moral implications of the Ten Commandments have been given to us both by God's voice here, and we will find that as God writes them on the tablets by his very finger, so these words come to us with the very authority of God himself. Now, friends, what's extremely sad is that there are many churches gathering today who will have God's word present in their facilities, maybe in their pews, maybe in banners on the wall, maybe painted on the ceilings, who will not even reference the word of God, who will not even lean on the word of God, who won't even speak the word of God. They will ignore it as something that is irrelevant and unnecessary. May that not be true of us. We go home likely to bookshelves full of Bibles. But do we take the word of God seriously? Do we seek to read it, seek to hear it, seek to, to learn it, to study it, to apply it? Friends, God has spoken. He is speaking. The question is, are we listening? Now, he is the God who speaks, but he's also the God who saves. And here we have a summary statement of, of what God has done, who he is and what he's done. Now notice, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So he did not save them, hear this, in order to leave them in the wilderness to fend for themselves. He didn't say, I got you out of Egypt. See ya. No, he got them out of Egypt. And now what he's doing is he's laying a foundation for them to function as a nation. And he's laying out these commandments to be central to the foundation of that nation. There's something binding and relational to what he is saying to them here. First of all, I have, I have four, four observations from verse 2 that I want to share right now, okay? Number one, he is their sovereign God. I am the Lord. Notice that's in capitals, L-O-R-D. It's referring to Yahweh, the I am. He is the self-existent, sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. He is the great I am. So he is their sovereign God. Secondly, 
Here is their, he is their personal God. Not only I'm the Lord, I am the Lord, your God. Now, friends, that's really important because all the time, God has been drawing Israel to himself. He has chosen Israel to be his people. He has been laying this, this relationship out through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now to the people of Israel who are in Egypt and who have been brought out of Egypt and who are under the mediation of Moses. He is their God. He's heard their cry for rescue. He has made himself known to them, and they are his treasured possession. And friends, that's powerful stuff to the people who are listening. Did you know that God is sovereign? But did you know that if you are one of his children, he is your God? He's not just a God. He's not just out there. He is a personal God who's covenanted with his people. And that's the next thing. He is their covenant-keeping God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Oh, why did he do that? Because he said he would because he heard their cry, he saw their, 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 their suffering, and he promised to them, he covenanted with them that this is what he would do. And of course, he is faithful to keep his covenant, and that's what we did when we did our reading this morning. We, we emphasized over and over and over again the word hesed, his steadfast love endures forever. But he's also their redeeming God. He brought them out of the land of slavery. They are no longer slaves in Egypt. They're now free. Now, friends, they may be free, but they still need organization. They still need structure. They still need instruction. They still need guidance. They still need help, but they're free. So Israel's God is not a new Pharaoh to them, giving commandments to his people in order to control and oppress them and force them to do his wishes or suffer the consequences, often that's how people view God in the Ten Commandments. The reason he gave us these commandments is simply to control us and put us in our place. That's not what he's doing. That's not what the tone of Scripture is about at all. No, God's commandments are good and are motivated by his love and commitment to his people, and they are to be received and obeyed with a joy that is motivated by love. And friends, it's good to say it again and again and hear this statement. Salvation is not the reward for obedience. Salvation is the reason for obedience. Salvation is not the reward for obedience. Salvation is the reason for obedience. You ask your average person who might even interact with you on you know, keeping a relationship with God, and they are going to come to you from the framework of salvation is the reward for obedience. I've been a good person, and therefore I think God will allow me into heaven. They've got a completely warped view of what Scripture says. They think that salvation is something that you earn. It's a reward for your good deeds. But salvation is the reason for obedience. In other words, we are obedient as a fruit of what God has done in us. It's really helpful and important for us to realize that. So what we find then is later in the, in, in the Gospels, Jesus gathering with the disciples and washing 
the feet of the disciples, which is a picture of what he was going to be doing on the cross. He's, he's showing by his servant attitude not to go out and wash each other's feet. That's not the point. He's showing them that he is going to wash their feet in a greater way. Not just their feet, but their whole body, right? He's going to wash them by what he does on the cross. And then he says to them, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In other words, it's the fruit of this relationship with God. So grace always comes before law. Now, friends, I realize as we, you know, this has been more theoretical, and I appreciate you hanging there with me, but I want you to ponder these things. As we come to a close here, just a couple of concluding thoughts. I'll be really brief. I have three things, three challenges really for you. Number one, memorize the Ten Commandments in order. I don't necessarily mean memorize the whole passage, but I mean memorize the Ten Commandments in order so that you can say, you know what, hey, these four, these are vertical, these six, these are horizontal, here's what they are. Put that into your system. If God has declared these things, it's good for us to remember these things. Right? Secondly, prepare. Prepare. We are going to walk through the Ten Commandments one at a time every week. So if you're going to get away for a weekend, know that we'll be able to be paying special attention to which command you are seeking to avoid when we get there, okay? Obviously, I say that tongue-in-cheek, somewhat. All right. Seriously. Take time to reflect on the significance of each command and what it teaches you about the character of God. See, God is not just kind of like blowing a lot of hot air and trying to control people. He's trying to reflect his character in these commands. What is God trying to identify here? What is he seeking to, to teach you about himself? Secondly, consider how each commandment is a shadow that points to Christ. As we go through them, we want to see how these things are related. The third thing is this, and this is important, and I, I left it to the end because I want to make sure that we understand it, and it's, it's to believe. You say, well, what do you mean by that? I do think that we can come to the Ten Commandments and just feel overwhelmed. We know that we fall short. We know that we've blown it more times than we want to admit. So it's really important that we believe what the scriptures tell us, that you're, if, if you're in Christ Jesus, Paul says, you are not condemned. And that's Romans 8.1. It says this, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And of course, when you see the word therefore, what do you have to do? You have to ask what it's there for, and it's a transitional word that's saying, I've just talked to you about something, and I'm giving you some instruction based on what I just talked to you about. In chapter 7, he's dealing with the law. He's laying out the struggle between the law of the flesh and the law of the spirit, and, and, and he comes and says, look, I, I know this is tough, but hear this. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are not condemned. So don't come to the Ten Commandments and read them and feel condemned. You're missing the point. And you're forgetting that what Jesus Christ has done is he has fulfilled these commandments 
And because you have embraced him as your Lord and Savior, what he does then is he transfers his righteousness to you. It's an alien righteousness. You're clothed in his righteousness. And by virtue of that, you are not condemned because of your failure to keep the law. You will not keep the law. Only one person can keep the law, can fulfill the law, and that is Christ. So friends, it's a truth that we must not only embrace theoretically, but believe practically. It is a truth that we must not only uh, embrace practically, but we need to make sure that we don't allow ourselves to spiral into despondency because we forget to believe. We can't measure up, friends, but Christ does. Now let's go back to that proposition, and hopefully now it will make a little bit more sense. It was long, but hopefully now it'll make a little bit more sense as to where I was going and why it's important. God's commandments are good, and they flow from the heart of a loving, covenant-keeping God who seeks to guide his children into a life of freedom. He's not seeking to oppress his children into a new type of servitude. He's seeking to guide his children into a life of freedom. Lord, help us as we contemplate, Lord, the, the important place of your law, and in particular, these Ten Commandments. Lord, there's a lot that we have covered this morning, and I ask that as each of us ponder and consider these different aspects of the law that help shape our understanding of what's going on and how it's working, that as we come to these Ten Commandments, we will come eager to hear what God is saying to Israel, but also eager to see what God is saying to us, who are now under the new covenant, and who are now uh, in Christ, living our lives for his glory. Lord, help, to, help us to be fashioned and shaped by your commandments, the Ten Commandments in particular, so that we can grow in our understanding of what it means to walk with you and to live out in our freedom that comes because of what your son Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Strengthen us, help us, bless us. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.